Hi everyone, I'm Eddie. I'm Ashwin. And I'm Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. Before we get started, we'd like to ask you a special favour and ask you to jump onto your podcast app and rate and review the podcast as this will help us to get the word out to others about our Blood Cancer Talks podcast. For today's episode, we're very excited to talk about the treatment of newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, DLBCL, with a couple of added ASH bonus updates on DLBCL. We're honoured to have lymphoma expert Dr. Pallavi Torka join us today. Dr. Torka is an assistant attending physician on the lymphoma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. Let's do some quick introductions. Dr. Torka, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Thank you so much for having me. I will qualify that depending on when this podcast is actually shared with the world. I will be an assistant attending physician and right now it's just day one of my unemployment. I recently finished 10 years at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center. I love everything lymphoma. I am a clinician, researcher and educator interested in lymphoma in that order. My research so far has been on uh, novel drug development in aggressive lymphomas with a focus towards uh, older adults with lymphoma. Uh, I'm very interested in outcomes-based research because that's where most of our people are treated is not on clinical trials. Uh, And I've also dabbled in the lab a little bit. I've seen a few drugs taken from the bench to bedside uh, and it's been really gratifying. So kind of a jack of everything lymphoma. So happy to be here and share um, my knowledge and whatever I've learned in the past few years. Great. We're very, very pleased to have you uh, with us. We thought we might start with a case to get things going. So let me introduce Sam is a fit 61 year old accountant who presents with three weeks of fevers, night sweats and an enlarging mass in his axilla. A core biopsy of the axillary mass demonstrates sheets of large abnormal lymphoid cells with a high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio consistent with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, germinal center B-cell or GCB subtype, with positive BCL6 and MYC expression on immunohistochemistry. A PET-CT scan demonstrates widespread disease including bone and liver disease and his lactate dehydrogenase or LDH is 450. Let's start by asking, how do you approach a patient with newly diagnosed DLBCL? Yeah, so this is uh, probably one of the classical presentations that we see in clinic. So how I think of uh, a patient's case is to think of the disease itself, the patient and the scenario. So in this case, the pertinent things that I would think in the disease is starting with the uh, with the biology, so the immunohistochemistry. So is it, uh, first of all, confirm the diagnosis, of course, and then is it GCB subtype or um, non-GCB subtype, which is what you would get from the immunohistochemistry by Hans algorithm. We don't usually send gene expression profiling in clinical practice, which is probably the real way how we could probably classify these patients more accurately into uh, molecular subtypes. The other thing I always make a note of is if there's anything special about the lymphoma, for example, is it EBV associated or is there expression of CD30? Just things that we could harness if I'm not able to give standard of care therapy to these patients for some reason. So after immunohistochemistry, the next step is to talk about the cytogenetics, which I always like to point out is double expressor is on immunohistochemistry and double hit or now you know we reclassify it into high-grade b-cell lymphoma uh, with make with or without bcl2 or 6 translocation and that is on cytogenetics so that's the next thing that i look at and then after that i move on to the stage which in this case the patient looks like uh, has stage 4 disease also make a special note of any high-risk organs such as adrenal or breast involvement And then you need other features which kind of keep patient and disease characteristics together like the IPI score. So this is everything that I think about for the disease first. And then I move on to look at the patient's profile. So how old is the patient? uh, What is the performance status? And what are the comorbidities? So, uh, you know, in the ideal world, we would really like to use a more objective comorbidity score like the Charlson's comorbidity index or in the older adults, a SIRS G-score, which are well validated and have been shown to be associated with outcomes. But uh, in clinical practice, it's the eyeball test. 
but it's very important to note especially you know cardiac toxicities which have direct implications on whether anthracyclines can be used or not so we we look at all that and the last thing is the urgency of therapy you really need to know if the patient needs treatment today or versus if the patient can wait 10 days or a week to get an echocardiogram report and just you know stuff like that so so this is all that i kind of look at before i make a treatment plan for the patient great that that's uh, signposted a lot of the discussion questions we certainly going to come back and cover uh, very nicely um another question we wanted to ask is do you do bone marrow biopsies in all your patients with DOBCL and how, how does that um impact your thinking yeah and um you know it's very interesting that i've been doing this as a faculty member for um 6 6 and a half years and even during this time i've seen my practice evolve so much so it was like a rule to do a bone marrow biopsy in every patient regardless of their stage when i started but now i've i'm i'm not doing them as much so it's only if it'll make a this difference in how i care for the patient so if the patient has stage 1 or 2 dis- if the patient has stage 1 disease and you know for sure that it's super unlikely that the bone marrow will be involved i don't bother if there it's stage 2 where you're kind of nervous then you might go ahead and do it uh, but also it's kind of optional i feel like even at that point more importantly um if it's an older adult and the patient has cytopenias you're worried about bone marrow involvement because of that or myelodysplastic syndrome uh, where they're at high risk for cytopenias from the chemotherapy those are situations where i do it and of course if a patient is found to have transformed lymphoma the same sample has a low grade lymphoma that then it is important to do it to see what's happening in the marrow does the patient have follicular lymphoma in the marrow too the last situation where i would think of doing a bone marrow is if there is a monoclonal protein you know usually marginal zone lymphoma is a could be or even cll could be associated with a monoclonal protein so if you see something like that in a patient with dlbcl it's important to um do a biopsy and of course it's going to be a zebra but you know we've seen all sorts of weird cases where it could have concomitant myeloma or mgas in older adults so it's important to do a bone marrow biopsy in those cases so basically when you when you smell something fishy uh, or where you think it might change your management that then 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 it's worth sort of doing the bone marrow biopsy for completeness um right. but but perhaps doing fewer bone marrows than you might have done 6 or 7 years ago absolutely one question i had was while you are working up in a patient like this is it always absolutely needed to do a pet scan or can we get by doing ct chest abdomen pelvis and do pet scan in the follow up so the ideal situation is to do a pet scan however there like again that's why i'd mentioned initially the third point is you have to evaluate the urgency of the situation sure. do you need a pet scan to get started you absolutely don't if a patient needs treatment today you just do it it's not going to matter it is nice because for example to calculate the ipi score a cat scan will not pick up your extranodal sites especially in the bone or the liver um so it's important to do a pet scan that way but you're absolutely right the i guess the most important pet scan is the end of treatment pet scan so as long as we can get that we could kind sure. of get by so we thought a, a, a nice place to start would be to talk about the, the um our favorite combination archop which has been standard of care for coming on to two decades certainly at least until 2021 and so could you sort of give us a bit of a recap a bit of an overview as to how we ended up at archop and archop 21 as the kind of backbone of dlbcl treatment yeah and you know i had to do some reading to answer that question and it's very interesting archop was first described guess can you i mean i don't know i i i was kind of surprised it was in 1976 So it's been 50 years of Archop really and it's still the the king on the throne you know almost kind of holding on now but it's still there in ABVD 1975 and it just got displaced by BVAVD so I you know it's it, we are coming to the end of an era which is right. a good thing for our patients I think yeah but so in so after our, so the first time a chance of cure was shown by multi agent chemotherapy in large cell lymphoma and it wasn't called that at that point it was called um histiocytic sarcoma reticulin sarcoma and things like that uh that was in 1975 
Anthracyclines were in 1976, the regimen CHOP, essentially, there was no rituximab at that time, was described in 1976. And then there were a slew of single arm studies with more aggressive regimens, M, Bacord, Mecop B, Promacytobom, and I was commenting that they kind of sound like some like Indian expletives, all those names. But finally, a head-to-head study was done. I, I believe it was published in 1993 in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they had they compared our CHOP, NOAR, head-to-head with three different arms, which consisted of these three regimens. And the outcomes were essentially similar, more toxicity with the aggressive regimens. And this was a shock because this was a very unexpected result. Uh, And kudos to the intergroup mechanism, which was even existent at that time. And they did the study because obviously no pharma company would have done the study, which established CHOP as the standard of care. Subsequently, uh, in from Europe especially, there were other regimens like the ACVBP regimen and, you know, a lot of work looking at CHOP14 versus CHOP22 and in older adults, there was some, one study which showed that CHOP14 might be better. But but this these are historical footnotes in my opinion. I think the next important phase in uh, treatment of DLBCL was the rituximab. Uh, It was first approved in 97 and then the first study that kind of established its importance in large cell lymphoma was in older adults and it was done by the GILA group uh, and it was uh, replicated then by in the US and then in younger patients there was this MINT study which also showed that RCHOP has about 10 to 20 percent better outcomes than CHOP and then you know many many studies real world outcomes from British Columbia everybody replicated that data that this like our job is the standard of care from then onwards. Um, at the same time, our maintenance was also studied and it did not show any benefit. So so the that established the treatment paradigm that our CHOP 21 without any rituximab maintenance is the way to go in most patients with large cell and I'm And I think it's interesting uh, as we'll come, we'll come back to uh, Polarix, of course, but how many trials there have been over the past kind of 20 years trying to challenge RCHOP um, unsuccessfully, you know, adding autograft, uh, adding all sorts of novel drugs, um, but, but RCHOP has sort of held its own for, for many, many years, a kind of testament to the importance of high-quality randomised trials. The next um, thing we wanted to ask you about was obviously the case we talked about um, uh, on his immunohistochemistry, we would call him a double expressor. And so I wonder uh, if we might talk a bit about immunohistochemistry and then uh, cytogenetics. How does someone's immunohistochemistry, such as their, you know, whether they're a double expressor or a triple expressor, change your approach or affect your approach at all? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, looking at the stem of your case, the patient has a BCL6 overexpression and then uh, MIC overexpression. So in my opinion, BCL6 is a germinal center marker. So just having BCL6 overexpression does not really have as much bearing on prognosis as a BCL2 overexpression. So I call a double expressor only if a patient has BCL2 and MIC overexpression. Having said that, what do I do with these patients? And many studies have shown that patients who have uh, double expressor lymphoma does have a worse outcomes compared to patients who do not have uh, double expressor lymphoma. But what do we do about it? So uh, to your point, you had mentioned the the other novel agents that have been added in the past. For example, Ibrutin, the Phoenix study where Ibrutinib was added. And then the addition of bortezomib, which I know we might talk about later, to RCHOP. And none of these studies, and lenalidomide, which has been added to RCHOP. And while they make sense in the lab, they make a lot of biological sense. We have never been able to show in a randomized trial that they have bested RCHOP in any scenario. Does that mean that they are, they don't work? I think there are caveats to that stri- those trials because, as we all know, the sickest patients never make it to trials. They are treated on standard of care regimens. Uh, physicians have a bias on putting those patients into trials where they might have to wait a little bit. So, so it's hard to tell if they they have any benefit. If they have no benefit, I think biologically they do have benefit. But we really, really need to be sure about which patients we are targeting with that. So that is a big problem with using IHC expression in your clinical practice. So what do I do with that information in frontline? I make a note of it. 
but I don't really act upon it in the frontline setting. I know we are going to talk about the Polaric study and in that study, the ABC subtype did benefit quite significantly from addition of polatuzumab to our CHP. And I personally think that signal is real. So um, if that regimen does get approved by FDA, that might change my practice or at least spark a conversation uh, with the patient. But that's all, but that that's kind of my takeaway from the immunohistochemistry bit of the patient information that we have. Uh, in terms of double hit lymphoma, and I know there, there are new names for it, but I still call it double hit because that's the easiest. I am still in the camp which supports doing something more than RCHOP. So I can't say what is the best thing to do more than RCHOP, you know, is dose-adjusted EPOC the way to go? I go to that because I don't know anything else which is better. If there's a clinical trial, I would love to enroll a patient on the trial. But what I know for sure is that RCHOP is not good enough in these patients. And I'm not talking about stage one, two patients or where the biology looks really indolent. Most patients who do have double-hit lymphoma, I mean, even before their cytogenetic results come back, you can tell oh, this patient probably has double-hit lymphoma, and that's where you know that no matter what you do, they're not going to have good outcomes. And the same is true for many patients who don't have double-hit lymphoma, but they just present very aggressively, like a lot of, like with high IPI score. And IPI score also is a little bit challenging because it's also driven by age and um, performance status. But I think the most valuable part of IPI score is the number of extranodal sites and the stage. And if a patient has five extranodal sites, disease everywhere, that's not the same patient as somebody who's just older and frailer. So I think we really need to move away from these, from just disease-driven scores, and we need to have these comprehensive scores which incorporate both disease data and patient data and tailor treatments based on that in the future. And so I think you sort of um, covered some of the other ground in terms of immunohistochemistry, and it's, it's really good in terms of fish and cytogenetics to hear your thoughts on that. Do there any other kind of genetic or genomic lesions that factor into the way that you um, practice? Any other information that you that you want, say, you know, about our patient or any other patient that you haven't got to help inform your approach? Yeah, so, you know, there have been two molecular classifications that have been published over the past 10 years and they see they look great and they do overlap um, at many levels but the problem is we don't have them available in clinical practice so i really don't think about them at all when i'm seeing a regular patient or even on i think we are a bit far away from using them in our practice for sure things that i look for are targetable um, something targetable so if there's cd30 that's in our standard panel to check I have a patient that I'm treating right now who is 82 and he was going through some other, another cancer, I, I don't remember, I think some other treatment for another cancer where I couldn't really treat him for his lymphoma appropriately with like RCHOP. So I just started him on single agent brintuximab because his disease was expressing CD30 and it was very low burden. And he went into remission and he's been in remission for one year even after I've stopped brintuximab. So, so these little nuggets of information are very useful to make personalized decisions for some patients. So I usually just do them all up front just to get more information. But I, I, the only thing I can think of is CD30 for now. Uh, I don't think there's anything else that we can target. I don't, I don't know if something else comes to your mind. Coming back to this case, uh, Dr. Uh, that you know, how do you incorporate you know using IPI as well as CNS IPI into your treatment approach? I know you briefly touched upon the IPI. Yeah, so IPI is... So when we talk about IPI, we have to talk about which exact IPI. So the IPI score was actually initially described in 1993 or so in the pre-rituximab era. And then there came the revised IPI, which Dr. Sen had um, was the first author in blood, I believe it was in 2007. And then the NCCN IPI is in 2013 or so. And um, recently there was a paper where uh, they compared all three in a huge cohort of patients and NCCN IPI was the winner with really good demarcation between their uh, four risk groups. So I think in the current times, if we are incorporating an IPI, it is it should be the NCCN IPI. Um, but you know, like usually I just go to like internet and I just type IPI calculator and the one that comes up is revised IPI. So that's one thing to just keep in mind is what you're using. 
the nice thing about NCCN IPI is that it uses age as a, not just age above 60 as a cutoff, but 40, 40 to 65 and 60 and 60 to 75, which is really nice. How do I use the IPI? I actually just, in the past, I used to do a lot more dose adjusted epoch in patients who had very high IPI. Uh, with all the recent data, real world data that has come out and data from CALGB50303, which was a large study that compared our CHOP versus dose adjusted EPOC and showed no difference between the two. I have kind of shied away more uh, from just using IPI as a, as, an op as a factor to choose my treatment. Um, so I'm using it less and less in standard of care practice, but there are many clinical trials which incorporate, which um, include only patients where the IPI score is 3 to 5. So it's been useful in those cases. NCC, uh, sorry, CNS IPI is a little bit more useful. So <clears throat> again, another change that has happened is in since I started my practice is uh, less and less CNS profile access in our patients because it doesn't work. It's not that they don't need it. It's just that the modalities that we have are not able to move the needle. So when I start, so there are three risk, risk groups in CNS IPI, low, intermediate, and high. So when I started, I used to do it for intermediate and high. Now I'm restricting my CNS profile access. I'm not bold enough to just not do it at all. I am restricting it, restricting it in my patients who have ultra high risk CNS IPI, which I think is like score of five and six, because they're at super high risk. And, and like we know that nothing really works but maybe it works so i'm i'm just doing that uh i'm just doing it in those patients and of course if you know now that we're talking about cns profile access if they have adrenal involvement or kidney involvement breast something like that then i go for cns profile access and what do you use for the cns profile access that is a very difficult question um you know roswell park is part of um it was part of um uh, one of the intergroups where they were part of the studies that had intrathecal profile access when it was studied originally. So the institutional standard for many, many decades has been to do intrathecal profile access. So we've pretty much stuck to that, but with all the recent data coming out that intrathecal profile access really doesn't work, um, I'm inclined more to use high-dose methotrexate. I would really encourage everyone to see Dr. Sinarski's uh, presentation at the recent ASH that was just concluded. It is a masterpiece. It really has convinced me to, if at all I do CNS profile access, to do it at the end of uh, completing therapy with Archop, uh, because that seems to be the best way to go, the most harmless way to go. I would add though, is that in patients who have high risk IPI, CNS IPI, doing one lumbar puncture at diagnosis is probably important because we have picked up so many uh, asymptomatic leptomeningeal involvement that I feel very nervous not checking their um, cerebrospinal fluid for any involvement. Because then, of course, your treatment plan is going to change so much. Now, I thought we'd um, move to the kind of multi-million dollar question, which is that at ASH in 2021, we saw um, Professor Tilly present the Polarix trial, which compared six cycles of RCHOP with six cycles of polituzumab vodotin uh, substituted for the vincristine renamed Polar chip. And polituzumab is an antibody drug conjugate which targets CD79B on B cells. And so my question is, uh, if the FDA approves polituzumab, would you swap to using Polar chip for the upfront treatment of DOBCL for, for all your DOBCL patients, for some of your DOBCL? patients or for, for none of them, how would you think about this trial? Yeah, so that is a very tough question, honestly. You know, so I'm going to back up a little bit and say that as long as I don't have FDA approval for this drug, I'm not, this is not one of those regimens where I'm going to jump through a lot of hoops, which you have to in America to get an off-label approval. I'm not going to make extra effort to get Polar chip for my patients. Once it's approved, when it's easy to get this patient, get this drug, then it's a tougher choice actually i think the drug is used the combination is more powerful than archop for sure which makes sense because it's an antibody drug conjugate but does every patient need it 
if I have a patient who has low risk disease, IPI, NCC and IPI score of zero to one, where their outcomes with RCHOP are already five-year overall survival PFS of 80%. I don't think this is the patient population where they're benefiting from polar RCHOP. It's the patients who have very high-risk disease. So all the patients that I used to use dose-adjusted EPOC with high IPI, where I used to feel really nervous giving them RCHOP, and I just didn't know how to help them, and I was just like waiting for a relapse. These are the patients now that I can breathe a sigh of relief and and say that, okay, I have something better to give you. And I think time will tell, but I think over time, this is the subset which will which will really come out to have an overall, overall survival benefit with polar chip or polar chip compared to Archa. So to, your, to answer your question, no, I don't think I'll be using it in all populations, all patients as the blanket regimen. I'm going to reserve it for patients who I think have high risk disease um, in the future once it gets approved. And from your reading of the Polarix data and any, any patients you've treated with polatuzumab, how do you think the toxicity of polar chip compares to that of Archop? Yeah, so you know, the we were part of the Polarix study and it was blinded. So we still don't know what arm our patients were treated on. So I, I don't know how they tolerate, I mean, you know, like I don't know if Polarix, polar chip is more toxic than Archop that way from personal experience. Um, I had thought that data will show that it probably has more neuropathy and more cytopenias. But in the trial, the toxicities were very balanced. So that's a huge, huge win. I mean, it's a huge thing in favor of polar chip is that it may be better and it is not more toxic. So that's definitely something, you know, real world data, I think is going to be super important for a regimen like that, because we all know that patients who go on trials are just Hercule, Hercules, superhuman. So we'll see how it, it pans out in the real world. But I'm, that made me really excited, especially because um, I'm very interested in care for older adults. So, and actually men who were over the age of 60 did better on polar chip and they didn't have higher toxicity. So that was what caught my interest in the trial results. Yeah, absolutely. How do you think about progression-free survival or PFS as an endpoint, uh, specifically in DOBCL? Yeah, so I think it is important because in any of these trials, the cause of death is mostly lymphoma. Having said that, the second line and third line therapies are getting better. So we can no longer say that PFS is a good surrogate endpoint for OS in DLBCL. It is. But it, I feel like it depends on the magnitude of the progression-free survival. If you have a progression-free survival of benefit of 20-30%, then, then of course it, it is going to uh, translate into an overall survival in a few years. It's just the follow-up is not long enough. But in a, day, in a trial like Polarix, where I, I believe it was a 6% progression-free survival benefit, I think the jury is still out there. I, I don't know if you can really translate. That's why I don't want to use it as a blanket new great treatment i want to reserve it for patients where the pfs curve was probably a little more separated uh the high-risk subgroups yeah thanks the the another interesting element is the cost of polytuzumab obviously all the drugs in rchop are generic or biosimilar whereas polytuzumab's eighteen thousand dollars for every cycle at least in the u.s does cost factor into your decision you know as a lymphoma clinician thinking about how you approach patients you know, that's a really tough question because I, I originally belong, I'm from India and a cost is a huge factor there and in, in most countries, but in America, we are spoiled where we don't really talk about cost. You know, as when a patient is sitting in front of you and you know that the regimen is better, really it's hard to make a case for cost here in America. So uh, while I, I, I think advocacy is very important as a nation, to bring down these costs like there's like making polatuzumab doesn't cost that much money i mean they can certainly cut down the cost and still make a huge profit i, I think looking at an individual patient i i don't think i can use cost as a reason to decide their treatment and i know that there was a recent publication in blood uh, by Sweta kambam party who had talked about that I think she had shown that it is still cost effective because if these patients go to CAR T cell therapy, that is just so prohibitively expensive that if we can save one patient from going to CAR T cell therapy, giving polatuzumab to, and she showed some number needed to treat, it's still beneficial. So, so that, so, so yes, so 
I don't think I'm going to use that cost as a consideration in my treatment. Sounds good. All right. So we'll now uh, go into some quick updates from the 2022 ASH meeting and we'll talk about the Remodel B trial. Um, as uh, Dr. Torka, you had alluded to earlier that there were so many negative trials of RCHOP compared with RCHOP plus X. And this was one of the trials which was RCHOP compared with RCHOP plus bertezomib. And it was overall, the Remodel B trial overall was a negative trial. However, in ASH this year, they had the five-year updated results of Remodel B comparing RCHOP versus RCHOP plus bertezomib and they showed that in the subgroup of patients who had ABC subtype or activated B cell subtype there was a signal for a PFS benefit. The five-year PFS was 54% with RCHOP and about 69% with RBCHOP. So um, how I want to know what do you think about these results? Do you think that we can use this result to change our practice right now? Uh, do you think this PFS uh, signal is real or do we have to wait for another randomized trial specifically in the ABC subtype to confirm these results before we can accept it in, in our clinical practice? Yeah, so, you know, I, I've done some work with carfilzomib, which is also a proteasome inhibitor in the lab, looking at the same question is, uh, in the ABC subtype. And there is great biological rationale for it because ABC subtype is... Uh, driven by NF-kappa-B overactivation and proteasomal inhibition um, shuts down NF-kappa-B activation and uh, hence is specific, it specifically targets APC subtype. So, so I used to use the Remodel B initial results in all my background research and my uh, introduction for my own papers. So I was quite surprised when, um, pleasantly surprised when the Remodel B updated data was presented at ASH. There are some problems though because you know, when they re so why did the negative trial become positive? Um, so we have to go into the details a little bit. So when they did the initial class, they redid the initial classification by using next gen sequencing, and the patients were classified into three groups this time, not just two groups, which is ABC GCB. They did ABC GCB, and they took patients out from the original ABC and GCB groups and made a third group called molecular high risk group. And this was the this was a group which really had really high risk patients who just did very poorly with therapy. What it did was that well, so the belief is that protozoomib was improving outcomes, but it was just one group of GCB patients that just had such good outcomes that they didn't need the protozoomib, and that was diluting the data. And so that's what they showed in their updated analysis: is the pure GCB group, which did not have any high risk features they had a progression-free survival at five years of 80% with or without bortezomib. So once they were able to exclude the really good group, they showed that in the rest of the group, which had poor outcomes, bortezomib made a difference. But then the problem is, the hypothesis was that bortezomib works only in patients who have NF-kappa-B overactivation, which is the ABC subtype. But the most benefit was seen in the MHG group, molecular high-risk group, which was GCB subtype. So now it's like, okay, like, how do I interpret this? And anyway, all this was done on NGS, which we don't have in clinical practice. So, so I really want to believe the data and I hope I can do better than Archop, but I just, um, it's just too um, complicated right now to really figure out which are the patients who will really benefit. So, you know, the other thing is that in the remodel study, both Vincristine and uh, Bortezomib was there, were there uh, in one arm. That's a lot of neuropathy. Uh, even though these patients get only 12 doses of bortezomib. So, uh, I mean, we have better drugs than that now. So, and bortezomib, you have to come on day eight again. It's a day one and day eight shot that they have to get. Actually, in the study, I think they were getting it IV because we're doing it in lymphoma, but we know that IV causes more neuropathy. So, so I, I think the field has moved on. I, I don't think in the study, out, it, it proves a hypothesis, but it's not really practice changing at this point. Do you think uh, maybe carfilzomib would be a good partner in that setting? I mean, do you think uh, you, you led the trial on carfilzomib with Archop? Uh, <laughs> no, so we were actually, uh, we published on carfilzomib with RICE, so Christ study, which was in relapse setting, and Brian Hill from Cleveland Clinic, he's the PI on the CARCHOP study, which is carfilzomib and Archop. But, um, you know, and, so, and it is 
it is very interesting it's not just the art and science of medicine it's also the business of medicine so many of these drugs are the the, the development is controlled by the uh, companies who own the drugs and which direction they want to move so i don't think um, so the the phase one study of carchop is done i don't know that i'm not privy to the data yet but i don't think it's being pursued further in lymphoma um it's the mo most focus for carfilzomib is in myeloma. So we, we are not pursuing registration trials for these combinations. So I wanted to ask a couple more questions about some ASH updates. Uh, one of the, I think, mo more exciting updates were around updates for bispecific antibodies, uh, particularly those targeting CD20 and CD3, um, drugs like glofitimab and epiritimab. Do you think that... Um, patients with DLBCL are likely to be cured with bispecific antibodies? How do you how do you think bispecific antibodies might factor into the treatment of lymphoma? I think there is a subset of patients who who benefit significantly and are probably being cured by these, you know, and it's it's important to find out who they are. Of course, achieving complete remission at the end of therapy is the first major landmark. It's a small subset, most likely it's going to be about 20 to 30% patients who achieve long-term remission, which will end into a cure. But that is true for many other regimens that are currently FDA approved and not considered curative. For example, if you look at the curves for long castuximab, also there are about 20% patients who haven't relapsed after long follow-up. Uh, same thing for lenalidomide and uh, tafacitimab. Tafacitimab. Uh, yeah, there is a tail at the end of the curve, which uh, shows the same thing. So there are these super responders and, you know, they're called the N of one trials. So we need to figure out what was special in those patients that made them respond so beautifully and uh, for such a long time. Well, and, for our audience, what is longcastuximab? Do you mind? Uh, oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So both longcastuximab and tafacitimab are anti-CD19 uh, monoclonal antibodies. Longcastuximab is approved as a single agent in the uh, third line setting and tafacitimab is approved with lenalidomide in the second line setting and beyond for diffuse large cell lymphoma. Sounds good. No, I was just going to ask to sort of, it's obviously impossible to know how to pick one of the, you know, when you've got all these little tails and you're hoping your patient in front of you will end up in one of the tails for one of these drugs. It's very hard to pick pick between them. You know, comparing glofitimab, which offers fixed duration treatment, or epcuritimab, which offers subcutaneous delivery, how do you, you know, what sort of factors about the, these different treatment options in an era where there aren't really many head-to-head -head trials, especially in later lines, you know, basically beyond uh, CAR-T and second line, there's not much, if any randomised, very little randomised data to guide treatment beyond that. So how do you think about uh, treatment with all these novel agents plus or minus older agents in that kind of later setting. Yeah, and that's what keeps us in business, right? All these new agents and we get to call ourselves experts and talk about them. No, it's great. You know, it's so exciting to have these because for the longest time we didn't really have anything after autotransplant and now you are spoiled by these riches. Um, of course, sequencing is really important. In terms of the exact bispecific antibody that you might use, you know, time will tell. There's never going to be a head-to-head -head trial. In my mind, most patients with large cell lymphoma die from large cell lymphoma, from the disease. So whichever is the most effective, even if it is maybe more toxic uh, or maybe a little more cumbersome to give, that will probably not be a major consideration. It's going to be the one that gives the best response. And then you have to personalize if it's an older adult where you feel like the risk of CRS and, and uh, morbidity from CRS is much higher their quality of life is more important, then you might flip your decision. But in general, in large cell lymphoma, you want to go for the best treatment in terms of efficacy. Um, in terms of a fixed duration is amazing. I think we always have to strive for, fi strive for fixed duration therapies. Um, and the data with lofitimab with uh, fixed duration actually looks pretty promising. Uh, we just have to wait out and see if it is durable. So um, I, I, I'm very excited with, about these um, bispecific antibodies. I think they are going to be um, a big uh, competitor for CAR T cell therapy in my mind. Like I, I, I think people who, companies who make CAR T cell therapy have to really watch out for what's coming. And are there any particular trials of the bispecifics that, that 
particularly excite you or you know in, in obviously there are, there are trials in lots of different settings you know including in the front line are there any particular ones that you're watching with fervor <laughs> with fervor yeah <laughs> you know i like lymphoma but <laughs> um so you know in the frontline setting of course the next logical step is to just combine combine it with the king right our chop and you just try it and see um if it if you improve outcomes which i think they will because they are a totally different treatment paradigm and they're easier to it so it's immunotherapy in a completely repackaged way it's very powerful so i think this will be a very good addition to our job of course will it benefit every patient no if a, you know similar to polarx trial patients who have low risk disease will probably not benefit from more treatment uh but i really like trials where you're not just piling on treatment you're taking away something you're swapping things so i'm very excited about some small trials that are happening in older adults now where they are trying to do a um frailty based treatment approach if somebody is really old above the age of 80 um you start just with bispecific antibodies start with start with some preface steroids start with bispecifics see how patients do and then if they need a little extra oomph add some mini artrop so trials like that i think where you are you're not just adding on stuff but really trying to change the standard of care um use these powerful tools to ha- get chemo free options are very exciting to me and these are the hardest ones to convince people to do but hopefully we'll get there yeah i mean on the, on that question you sort of mentioned age and you mentioned the kind of end of the bedogram are there other what else do you use when you're thinking about someone in a patient in front of you and and whether to give them artrop or aminichop or or a different kind of uh frailty adapted regimen ah uh, so now you're talking about topics close to my heart so Italian group Italian lymphoma group has been at the forefront of working on improving outcomes of older adults with lymphoma um so first of all they showed i think it was in 2009 that the eyeball test is not good enough people overestimate a patient's performance status and ability to tolerate chemotherapy by the eyeball test when you actually subject these patients to an objective frailty assessment test then you're overtreating these patients um why is that important is because then subsequently the italian group showed that no matter how you treat these patients they developed this uh, elderly prognostic index and a tool called the fil tool where it was much more powerful than our ipi score to predict outcomes in older adults and the difference between the ipi score and the epi the elderly prognostic index was that they married the ipi score with patient related factors so adls iadls um, comorbidity in disease and age so i think every older adult who's above the age of 70 should be subjected to the epi should be given an epi score and then if they fall into the frail or unfit category then they should we should really give serious consideration to mini artrop in the real world we don't have time to do these tests as such so i would just say any patient who's above the age of 80 the standard of care should be mini artrop until and unless there's a special scenario like double hit lymphoma or like a really amazing 8 year old uh, adult who is a marathon runner then maybe you can attempt artrop but the default should be mini artrop between 70 to 80 um, i think it was the uk group that published retrospective data that if you were able to give full dose artrop these patients did better but like of course it's because they were fitter and would have done better anyway you know so so your tendency should be to give artrop if the patient could tolerate it but deescalate very very quickly so in a you know a 78 year old whose end of the bedogram is good or whose eyeball test is good your approach is to sort of tentatively give one cycle of artrop and see how they tolerate it or how do you approach someone who's kind of in that gray zone so preface steroids that's the number one thing to remember is uh preface steroids really improve performance status and tell you what the patient's so a patient might walk in and look really fit and healthy and artrop is fine but what about the patient who has a low albumin and just is walking real slow has a walking stick with them like what do you do with them so you give preface steroids and see if they look better the next time if they do then you know the 
the performance status is bad because of the disease and our chop should be fine. If they do not, then, st then flip it. You start with mini our chop. If they tolerate it, great. They fly through it. You can go up to our chop. So, so what I would say is always tend to start low and go slow and go up versus start with like full, go full guns blazing and then patient get, gets admitted and can get treatment for five weeks. You know, you don't want to be in that situation. So go with mini chop first and then escalate. Yeah, that's that's um, really helpful. I think it's a very common uh, challenge faced in, in clinic, perhaps more than the uh, academic literature and, and clinical trial landscape reflects. Um, a different topic we wanted to get your thoughts on. Uh, obviously, interim PETs are used very uh, effectively in Hodgkin lymphoma to kind of modulate treatment. Do you think there's a role or if so, what role do you think the interim PET plays in diffuse large B cell lymphoma? Yeah, again, you have a long list of very controversial topics. <laughs> so <clears throat> we don't know. So everybody does what they feel comfortable with and what their patients feel comfortable with. So this is again where I've tended to go minimalistic as I've been practicing. Um, it all depends on where you trained and who trained you. So when I started my practice, we used to do interim pet after two and four cycles. Now I kind of just... I know that it's probably not needed because I was not really using that information. So I decided to do only one interim pet and I just was like, okay, I'm going to do it after three cycles. What is the data for after three cycles? Probably none. There is more data after two and just two cycles or just four cycles. Which one is more beneficial? I think the one after four cycles and, and I think some there was a paper which actually studied this is the which pet was the most beneficial and the bottom line was that the interim pet after four cycles was probably most beneficial because if you haven't achieved a CR after four cycles uh, doing two additional cycles may not really add much to the treatment the question though is how what is the complete remission on a PET scan that itself is controversial. So we're talking about dual score where, um, you know, it's zero, it's one, two, three, four, five. And in the lymphoma world, dual one, two, three is considered negative as in 2020, 2023. And four, five is positive. So dual one, two, three are fine. Dual five is fine. But what about the dual four? If you have an a, have a starting SUV of 35 and now your SUV is four, you know, uh, and the liver SUVs too, it's a dual four response, but it's an amazing response compared to somebody who started with a dual score of 35 and went down to a dual score of 20. That is also a dual score of four. Um, sorry, uh, you know, like SUV of 35 and 20, and that's a dual score of four, but that is not the same as the previous scenario. So I think we we have to go a long way in figuring out what's the best way to capture the, the data. So Delta SUV is emerging uh, where they, you know, like Delta SUV of 60, 66 is the cutoff and that's better. Um, easier also because it's more objective. A fancier way to capture this is metabolic tumor, total metabolic tumor volume, but you need very sophisticated algorithms for that. So I think that's a big challenge is when we take the, so as a clinician, I so I, so I feel that one reason why clinical trials have not shown the utility of PET, uh, interim PET especially is the fa fallacy in the dual scoring. As an individual uh, clinician, an interim PET is still very useful to me to just kind of look at the patient's trajectory and and give them reassurance and such. So what do I tell my patients? I tell them that I do it for my and their um, reassurance and just, just knowing that we're on the right track. If a patient comes to me for second opinion and says, oh, my doctor says we don't need interim pet, I'm like, that's totally fine. I'd really just leave it to the comfort of the treating physician. If a patient hasn't achieved a CR, so take the two patients you just gave as an example, someone who starts with an SUV max of 35, one ends up at 20, one ends up at four. Would you change anything about in either of those settings or would you still just give the last two cycles of RCHOP and, and rescan after two more cycles? How would you approach yeah. the, the two cases you just gave? So the, the one case where they had a beautiful response, super easy, right? You know, they're going to be fine. The patient number two, where they didn't really have a good reduction, you know that they're not going to be fine. The problem is, what do you do at that point? I, I, do you change right at that point or do you finish up? I used to finish up because 
like um, it's not really progressive disease at that point and the patient i cannot enroll the patient on any clinical trials and the next line of therapy is super aggressive like in now i would probably go for a second line car t cell therapy but it is hard to get insurance approval because you didn't the insurance company might raise some questions so for just standard of care sake i finish up the two cycles but if i have if somebody approached me with a clinical trial to change therapy at that point i would probably take it again you have to be really careful because you will score again like i'm saying 2135 but what if it's 1535 you know like where do you draw the line it's a mur it's murky so we just need to do like, so yes yeah, so i don't change right now but i think it should be changed in those patients so we've we've tried to cover off some of the most controversial areas in diffuse large basal lymphoma we've covered uh we've covered double hit lymphoma we've covered cns prophylaxis um what's your what is your approach to limited stage uh stage one and stage two diffuse large basal lymphoma i actually love limit treating limited stage diffuse large basal lymphoma because the outcomes are pretty good in most cases and there are so many different ways you can actually treat it I think the base of my uh, decision making started with I think it's S1826 the SWOG study I might be wrong on the number but it basically compared RCHOP with the uh, RCHOP um and radiation and initially it looked like there was progression free survival with RCHOP with radiation but over long term follow up there were late relapses in the radiation arm and the relapses were outside the field and it kind of leveled the playing field so in after that data came out basically it said that if you do six cycles of rchop 6 to 8 cycles of rchop versus three cycles of rchop and radiation both options are good so that's one those are two options that we have and then the flyer study came out which showed that you do six cycles of rchop or you do four cycles of rchop and two doses of just r you're fine so that means you could just do four cycles of rchop and just r But the study I love most is the S one zero zero one study. Again, another SWOG study, which showed that you can do PET adapted therapy, where you do three cycles of RCHOP, and if the PET scan is negative after three cycles, then you can just do one more cycle of RCHOP and stop. So I use all this information to just based on where that limited stage disease is and how is the patient tolerating treatment. So I just start the patient off with RCHOP. and then i see what happens if the patient is flying through chemotherapy then i just use the pet adapted approach three doses of rchop and just really uh, and just pet scan remission one more cycle of R- cycle of rchop great um if that pet scan shows a partial response there's still some disease left but i know they're going to be fine uh then i just after that three cycles of rchop i just send them to radiation and get them some radiation that is also my plan if a patient is older frailer and i want to really restrict how much chemotherapy they get uh that is the plan if uh the disease is in a field where um it's not easily uh radiatable or ra- amenable to radiotherapy then mm. um you go with a chemo based approach so you again do three cycles of rchop pet adapted therapy negative great one more cycle of rchop stop if uh the disease was bulky or you're just a little bit nervous it's in an extra nodal site maybe so it's stage 1e rather than stage 1 try to radiate if you can then finish off with six cycles of rchop especially in a young patient yeah great no it's uh, nice to have a few different options in limited stage disease i think that's all our questions for the moment so a huge thanks from the podcast talks team dr toka for joining us uh, for a discussion a great discussion of newly diagnosed diffuse large basal lymphoma You're most welcome. <laughs>